Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. Throughout history, war has had a profound impact on the natural environment. It is frequently linked with famine, pollution, and other ecological disruptions that can lead to disease or plagues of pests. Often, however, we tend to think of the environmental impact of a conflict as limited to the area of the actual battlefield. The troglodyte Western Front battlefields of World War I seem like the perfect examples of ecological disaster. And yet the damage to rivers, fields, and forests in these areas was not the only environmental impact of the war. Radiating from the European epicenter of the conflict and making it a truly global war was a scramble by all the warring powers for the natural resources needed to power the war effort. To discuss the global environmental impact of World War I, today we are joined by Dr. Tate Keller, Associate Professor and Chair of History at Rhodes College, and an expert on how warfare and energy extraction evolved during World War I. Welcome, Dr. Keller. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about your background and what drew you to focus on the environmental impact of World War I. I always had an interest in the First World War, and I think it started back when I I took a course as an undergraduate with Stuart Weaver, who was a phenomenal professor and scholar. And when I went on to grad school, I worked with Roger Chickering, who's one of the experts when it comes to Germany in the First World War. And I think that all just fed into my interest. And it was when I was working on my first book project about mountaineering in the Alps that I I wrote about the First World War in the mountains, which I hadn't known that much about. And in doing that research and reading how much soldiers were uh, astounded and terrified by the amount of destruction that was happening to the mountains where it seemed so stark. People talked about the mountains as being so pristine and beautiful. And now here comes this gruesome, ugly war to this beautiful landscape. And that got me thinking about uh, environmental impacts elsewhere. And that's what started me down this path. So let's start with the image of the war on the Western Front. Now, obviously, there are plenty of photographs. But then we also have combat veterans like Tolkien and poets like Wilfred Owen, um, who left us very, very vivid mental pictures of the desolation of the natural world on the Western Front. Can you outline the environmental impact of the war on the Western Front? Yes. Hostilities disrupted ecologies on every battlefield. But on the Western Front, it was particularly terrible mostly because it was so concentrated and the stalemate went on for so long with very little movement across these spaces. So when we think of millions of soldiers and billions of shells going back and forth across this landscape, forests were utterly obliterated, fields and farmlands were devastated. Those pictures are pretty accurate, at least within the range of the artillery and the heavy guns, which were typically didn't extend much beyond 20 kilometers. But within that range, it was, it was destruction. 
I mean, soldiers certainly had that impression. We can go through and find whichever side we're reading, whether it's British memoirs, French soldiers, German combatants, who are using really similar tropes when they're talking about this. Fields of sterility was one that came across that struck me. Other comments that the dead had given shape to the land, places as being dark, ravaged, dreary, barren. One soldier said that the land had lost its nature and had turned into something artificial, which I thought was quite telling. And what these remarks also tell us is that these soldiers are tapping into 19th century critiques of industrial development. So in a lot of ways, the war is highlighting for these men the human impacts on the natural world, uh, but particularly among those who didn't labor all that much in it. What we're often getting are remarks by university-educated individuals who've sort of been groomed in that natural appreciation for nature. We we probably get a different perspective where we too have been able to to interview farmers or laborers who uh, grew up in a slum or miners who worked in some pretty tough conditions. So there's, we always have to take those impressions with a little grain of salt. We did another podcast a couple months back that focused on the 1919 Tour de France. And that race goes through the Zone Rouge less than a year after the war ends. And the area is still relatively devastated at that point. Can you tell us about that zone and, and how quickly does the Western Front recover? Oh, yeah. I listened to that podcast and really loved it. It was it was fascinating. I had I had no idea about that 1919 Tour de France and going through some of these lands. Uh, in 1919, sure, uh, a lot of these places uh, have barely recovered from the wreckage of the war. If we were to skip forward a couple of years, even just to 1920, would see a pretty stark difference. And maybe that was one of the most shocking incongruities for soldiers was how quickly these devastated landscapes appeared to recover after the war. Uh, in 1920, there was an American, Corina Haven Smith. She was a humanitarian. She had done work with children during the war. And in 1920, she toured former front lines to assess the damage that had been done to towns and industrial centers, but also to agricultural lands. And she collected all that in a book that she published called uh, Rising Above the Ruins of France. And she, she frequently noted in this book in 1920 how farmers were already plowing and planting their fields. Grass had grown over shell holes. She noted that it was only trees that kept the record of the suffering. Uh, we know that veteran organizations uh, filed complaints with the French government because they were having a difficult time touring their former posts because of all the shrubbery and brush that had grown up. Uh, Vera Britton, who was a nurse during the First World War, in her memoirs had written down that nature herself conspires with time to cheat our memories. So it was striking, actually, how quickly these landscapes, uh, on the surface at least, uh, appeared to recover. I mean, the makeup of forests had changed to some degree uh, after the war. Uh, a number of Austrian pines and Scotch pines had been planted simply because they grow faster in poor soil. And we also know that soil composition, 
geomorphic change, that sort of thing had taken place. But to a person's eyes going there and looking at the front, it, it seemed to have drastically recovered in a relatively short period of time. I thought that was interesting, especially about the forest, this idea that you have diverse forests in terms of different like types of trees, species. And then I guess after the war, like you said, because they're just trying to plant something that will grow pretty quickly, suddenly you have this homogenous forest. So you lose some of that diversity in terms of the species. Yeah, you do. And eventually they're able to reintroduce some European beach, but by and large, yeah, these mixed forests become far more coniferous than they had been before. And people sometimes talk about what we call the iron harvest. Can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of where we are with that maybe even today? Yeah, even today, uh, it's uh, it's still a concern. Farmers regularly plow up shells. Um, There is uh, a government agency, both in France and in Belgium, that are responsible for going around and collecting these shells. Oftentimes, farmers will just leave them by the roadside for uh, these agencies to come along and collect. And then these shells go through a very careful analysis to determine if they're still alive. And then to figure out if it's a chemical weapon or not, and how then it needs to be disposed. Um, they're still dangerous, and being having that job as a, a deminer is also quite dangerous. Uh, I met with them, a group of them, back in I guess it was 2018, where they showed me some of their facilities, and I was astounded at just at the number of shells that they had collected, just even within. Uh, that past month. So that is, yeah, still a, a, still a significant thing. Uh, sometimes uh, farmers will get uh, tractors with armor underneath uh, to protect against accidentally striking one of those shells. That's just incredible to think about. You were mentioning some of the different veterans groups that were trying to visit the battlefields, you know, a couple years after the war had ended, and them being upset that they don't really recognize the trenches that they fought in because nature has kind of started to come back. Um, it reminds me of a poem, and I can't remember it, but are you familiar with a poem by um, Carl Sandburg called Grass? Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. I can't, I can't remember all of it right now, but I think he, he basically talks about, you know, pile the bodies up at Austerlitz, at Waterloo, at Gettysburg, at Verdun. And then there's like a line in there, like, you know, I'm the grass, I cover all, I'm the grass, let me work. So it just, it kind of reminds me of that, this idea of nature coming back on the Western front. Yeah. I'll have Um, to look that poem up. Yeah. Now I do too. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, no, I like that. And it's, I mean, we find this, this instance too, where there, where tourists will sometimes go to these landscapes today, half expecting to see the trenches still and any trenches that one does see have been artificially maintained for that purpose. Right. You are part of a growing field of military history and environmental studies that has a very interesting perspective on militaries, that essentially they are biological entities that need energy to function and that states have to expand their control over the natural world to secure, extract, and then deliver that energy to their armies. Can you take us around the 1914-1918 world and share some examples of this? And 
Are the greatest, most long-term environmental impacts of World War I thousands of miles away instead of on the Western Front? Yeah, I would make that argument. I think it's it's so easy to want to look at the Western Front just because it's such a, a common motif for so many of us who have thought about the war or have taught the war or for students who are learning about the war. Everyone talks about the Western Front. And look at these trenches and look at the battles that are taking place there. When, from an environmental standpoint, the lasting uh, impact doesn't, doesn't seem to be all great when compared to uh, other places. And here, I think it's not so much um, the immediate environmental change during the war, but it's the legacy of these industrial modes of production of warfare that demand this extraction of extensive and great amounts of energy in order to maintain combat. It's what it's what especially interested me when I first started this project. I thought, okay, I'm going to focus on Germany during the First World War, and that will allow me to look both at the Western Front and the Eastern Front and put the two into conversation, which doesn't often actually happen in the scholarship. But the more I got into Germany, the more I kept wondering, well, what are other countries doing? And that's what started me on this global project where I would find things like uh, tin extraction in the Malayan Peninsula, which I'd never considered, uh, and tin being so pervasive because it's an anti-friction metal. It's used in the tin kits for soldiers to keep their meals because it also is a metal that um, doesn't readily absorb into food or or creating sickness like that. And so tin operations in the Malayan Peninsula, which at that time produced something around 60% of the world's tin, massive expansion, massive expansion. We see in 1916, tin prices in London are 43% higher than they were in 1911. And on the Malayan Peninsula, there was competition between Chinese-owned firms, which just use massive amounts of manpower, and British-owned firms, which lacking the manpower, then turned to technology and would do this hydraulic sluicing, which is basically using high water pressure against the mountainside to get at that tin-bearing earth, which then caused massive erosion and choking rivers and really impacting the livelihood of local Malayans, uh, especially with uh, respect to fishing or having clean water. I thought, too, about food security being a defining feature of this war. And that took me to Latin America, which is another region people often don't think about with respect to the First World War. And it's out of Latin America that most of the belligerents, uh, at least the British and the French, are getting their grains and their proteins, uh, particularly their proteins from Argentina and Uruguay. And recent developments in freezing technology meant that uh, the preferred meat was the more fatty meat, not the uh, more refined meat. So if you were an Argentinian rancher who had invested a lot in high quality heifers, you're not the one who's getting the windfall here from this uh, financial advantage of, of having lower quality cattle. Uh, it's also it's transforming labor dynamics in Chile. Chile was where we get uh, sodium nitrates, which were used for fertilizer to keep these fields blooming and it's also used for explosives. And it was in the course of that war that we see the development of the Haber-Bosch process to extract the nitrate that is spelling the doom for the Chilean uh, sodium nitrate industry. So these economic transformations are also having environmental consequences. 
Uh, we see that on the Great Plains in the United States and Canada, where there are massive government incentives to increase farming to marginal lands, which is going to have consequences after the war, both in terms of dust bowls and in terms of liquidity when the European fields bounce back a lot faster than anyone expects. Some of your research includes some very interesting what-ifs, particularly in regards to World War I and the origins of HIV. Obviously, it's hard to prove these things, and as historians, we don't always get into what-ifs, but can you share this theory? This was fascinating for me, and I really need to thank Thaddeus Sinceri, who um, is a historian of Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, who first discussed this with me. So in Africa, during the First World War, there are massive food shortages, massive. Occupying forces there are insatiable. The movements of world markets for food to feed those big European armies are leaving folks in Africa in starvation conditions. So widespread famine. And what the speculation is, is that this widespread famine is driving more people into the jungle to hunt bushmeat, to hunt chimpanzees, to hunt sodi mangabes, uh, to feed their families. So what the war is doing, it's intensifying contact between humans and simians. So virologists have traced the emergence of HIV-1M, that's the pandemic form of HIV, to somewhere between 1910 and 1930, and somewhere in the origins around the southeastern corner of Cameroon, right in there. We know that there was fighting there with the Germans, although not that extensively. But what most scientists believe is that HIV was a zoonotic transmission. That is, it came from simian immunodeficiency virus, and it jumped over to humans, probably through exposure to infected blood, likely during bush, bush, uh, bush meat hunting and butchering. So there are just there are a lot of coincidences um, with the timing of it all. We might speculate that uh, desperate civilians who may have been exposed later migrated down to Leopoldville, which is today Kinshasa, which was the largest city in the region. We know that it was in Kinshasa where HIV evolved and spread the war. There was also an increase in blood transfusions that was happening. So when Thaddeus was explaining this to me, there just seemed a lot of points that lined up to give one pause enough to kind of wonder if this war had provided just the right conditions for this emergence of a new pandemic. We always, uh, when we thought, when we think about these sorts of things, we, we put a little pause and we always give the caveat that we need to be careful and, and not overstate uh, this case because the virus itself is just so entangled with moments of social upheaval, political upheaval, and ecological change. That's pretty difficult to pinpoint an origin. But we can maybe talk in terms of rather origins, uh, historical beginnings. So we look at all these factors that could be a, a pretty powerful what if. I noticed in some of your research, you also mentioned the fact that animal attacks are on the rise in Africa during this period. And that part of this is due to the fact, you know, native populations couldn't have weapons because of the, the war. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting, too. Firearms were restricted, even for Africans who had been conscripted into European armies. There was a 
careful count of, of weapons and bullets, which also made it really difficult for hunters uh, in terms of providing food for their family, which simply exacerbated starvation conditions. And it made it difficult to keep animals away, for example, elephants who would then tromp through um, rice paddies or fields and create all kinds of havoc. We find a case with um, relating to the increase in animal attacks that as these armies were moving around, it was much more like guerrilla warfare in Africa, these kind of hit, strike, and retreat back into the bush. And any time these armies came to a town, they, they would take the cattle. And the loss of cattle also meant the expansion of grassland. And the expansion of grassland also meant the expansion of uh, tetsi flies, which spread sleeping sickness. So there'd be this negative feedback loop. Also, uh, we find that there's an increase in lion attacks in some areas because slow-moving cows were easy prey for old and lazy lions. So uh, with the removal of those cows, we do see a correlation with an increase um, in lion attacks and people, which is causing a lot of these villagers to, to leave these areas, which further adds to this negative feedback loop of the expansion of grassland, which is good for the grasslands and the tetsi flies, not so much though for people living in these areas. War clearly sets patterns for exploiting nature, but does it also set patterns for conservation? Yes, it does in important ways, I think. It starts off seemingly small. So one example that comes immediately to mind is in the U.S., where among uh, officials, there was this fear that the U.S. would face starvation conditions because so much of its food stuff is being sent abroad. The U.S. wasn't going to face starvation conditions. Nevertheless, there were campaigns, uh, government-funded campaigns, to uh, get people to grow their own gardens in their backyard, this war garden movement, and concerns about uh, canning. So there'd be all these pamphlets teaching people um, how to can food, or pamphlets about how to properly heat one's house so that you don't overuse uh, coal or wood to keep yourself warm in winter. And Herbert Hoover, who was the U.S. Food Administrator, that's another interesting thing about this war is you see this creation of these new agencies, which are often a marriage between public organizations and private companies. So Herbert Hoover, as his U.S. Food Administrator, would do these campaigns of a meatless Monday, no meat, no meat, don't eat meat on Monday, or wheatless Wednesdays. Uh, they liked alliteration, seemed to work. And it did work. There was something like a 15% drop in um, food consumption in the U.S. during the First World War. So it was really fascinating. This is also, it's happening in Germany, especially in Germany, which has been under the blockade of the British and the French, and then had to resort to all kinds of means of conserving whatever food stuff that they had. And another instance that comes to mind is when a U.S. general returns back to the States and is in the Southeast, where he sees these, these massive clear-cutting uh, that had been done to certain forests. And to his eyes, it looks just like the Western Front, where forests had just been obliterated. And so the concern then becomes of conserving natural resources 
for war. So it became this idea that, uh, listen, we need to maintain these supplies. So we can't just go clear cutting forests. We can't just simply massively expand agriculture without some science behind it. So conservation then became closely linked to national security. And that, I think that that's what sets the major change from conservation groups that have been around since the late 19th century, but hadn't really made that much headway, are now invited into the halls of power to discuss how to maintain uh, the necessary raw materials to conduct future wars. Those sources of energy are clearly very important to national security. For industrial warfare, certainly. And that's what the First World War indicates to us. Final thoughts. We always talk about how World War I seems to set the fault lines for the modern world today. And in terms of environmental impact, how would you define the war's global legacy? I would circle back to that industrial modes of production and conducting war and the projection of power. So thinking about the projection of power and what that requires is then the energy to do so, the energy to send those ships, those planes, the energy to feed those massive armies that are being sent around the world. So these logistic supply lines that are allowing these superpowers to project that power abroad is absolutely based on the extraction of energy. It's in the First World War where we see the major transitions uh, from coal to oil. So oil now becomes a premium for armies and militaries. And this is when we see, especially with British moves in Mesopotamia during the First World War, really was a means for the British to take control of oil fields there that heretofore had been untapped. Most of the oil is coming out of the United States and Mexico. British concerns were about reliance on foreign oil, hence their desire to take control of Mesopotamia. So the geostrategic importance of oil and who controls oil and where oil is coming from then becomes essential to it. The other fault line, I would say, in addition to energy extraction, particularly oil extraction, is that During the First World War, this intensification of energy extraction reinforced imperial projects that had been going on since the 19th century. They're reinforcing state-building efforts in white settler societies. And what that then intensifies as well is the dispossession, the subjugation, the segregation of marginalized communities. Um, It sets or rather deepens foundations of racial inequality. It increases the marginalization of indigenous populations. All that was happening prior to the First World War, but the war then intensifies it as a result of this demand for energy. I think we see the legacies of that also today. Do you think that demand for energy is one of the reasons that the Treaty of Versailles and everything that comes out of the Paris Peace Conference is so disappointing to a lot of people who were anti-colonial or disappointing to someone like Wilson that was hoping to possibly have a, a different world come out of the First World War? Yeah, to some degree, I think so. I mean, 
in a lot of ways, <laughs> Wilson was, at least in, in, in my, my thinking about it, Wilson was, was out of his depth when it came to sitting there at the negotiation table, working with these European diplomats who were not about to give up anything of their empires and indeed saw this app as an opportunity to reinforce control over these places and over places that Germans once controlled, though not you know pretty measly compared to the British or the French. But in any case, it allowed these European powers to carve up the Middle East to their advantage. And it allowed them to set up relations with uh, Latin America in places in Asia that would be to their advantage. So even though Wilson, with this idea of self-determination and the idea of nations working together, it's not going to match when it comes to the scramble for energy, at least in one reading of it. Thank you very much, Dr. Keller, for joining us today and sharing some of your research with us. Pleasure's been mine. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.